Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Terry. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I also have a few housekeeping, housekeeping things that I want to share. First of all, I want to thank Tim. I don't, there he is. Uh, Tim has been, isn't he wonderful? Go ahead. Um, During the planning stages of this, he was the first person that called me last summer and invited me to come here. And over the course of the last couple of months, he's just been so kind and friendly. And I just really want to thank Tim. And I also want to congratulate him because yesterday, Tim celebrated three years of sobriety. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. And I also want to thank my host, Debbie, uh, for picking me up at the airport yesterday, for getting me here safely, and for being so friendly, and taking me out to eat, and uh, doing things that girls do. You know, and that doesn't come natural for me. That's something that I had spent several years working on, is being a girlfriend and being a friend. And, and Debbie has really extended herself to me, and I'm very appreciative to that. And also, I want to thank the committee for taking the time to listen to my CD and for inviting me to come here. So um, I want to get into my story this is a sad story, and I, I sometimes I preface it like that. I really liked what Peggy said yesterday. When she got up here, she was just so honest, and she said, you know, I'm not good at beginnings, and I'm not good at endings. And I was sitting out there thinking, you know, as often as I speak, I'm not either. Like, the part in the middle is kind of set, and it doesn't change, but I really never know how I'm going to open, and I never really know how I'm going to end. And so I'm not real sure what's going to come out of my mouth, but um, uh, hopefully that we'll all um, see the truth and the honesty of, of this disease, this fatal disease that I have. Do I need to put it close to my mouth? <laughs> uh, how's that? Is that okay? All right. So anyway, I grew up in a small town in Woodville, Ohio. This is one of those small communities where you can't fart. Everybody knows everybody. <laughs> um, and I still live there today. I have gone back to my small hometown, and uh, I uh, have a very happy life there. But as a little girl growing up, I was very... Uh, around alcohol a lot. My father was a what I would consider to be a functioning alcoholic. He never missed a day of work. He didn't get DUIs. He didn't go to jail. He didn't do all the things that I did. You know, He didn't pull it all down on top of him. He successfully pulled it off for many years until his death. And, uh, of course, he left my mother when my sister and I were very little. And my mother was also um, a heavy drinker. I suppose she was probably alcoholic. And uh, she would tend bar. So as I'm coming home from school in the afternoon, she was leaving for work. And during the night while I was sleeping, she was coming in from work. And I can remember a lot of weekends that my mother would just disappear. She would disappear and then resurface on Sunday. And I have vivid memories of my older sister, Pam. She's two and a half years older than me. And I have memories of my sister fumbling in the morning with a gallon of milk for this little five-year-old girl, trying to get the cereal and the milk into the bowl and trying to help get me dressed. And, you know, my sister and I today are really, really close. I love my sister. And, uh, but I look back on my childhood, you know, my sister kind of raised me, and that's a lot of responsibility for a little girl. And so as a result of this lifestyle in my home, in the household, there wasn't rules. There wasn't consequences. I never got grounded. There wasn't any structure. And I could just kind of roam the streets and do whatever I wanted. And, uh, 
Like, uh, I do not remember the first time I took a drink, but I clearly remember the first time that I got drunk. And the first time that I got drunk, I blacked out. And I don't know if you know as much about alcoholism as I do, but only alcoholic drinkers black out. And I blacked out the very first time I got drunk. But what happened to me that night? You know, I hear a lot of speakers say this, and I'm not any different than you. You know, I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I always felt like there was something different about me. And it was hard for me to interact socially with other people. And, you know, and I know today that my ego, the sole purpose of my ego is to separate me from you and to keep that wall in between us. And, uh, of course, I had spent several years building that wall, and I was isolated from other people. But when I consumed alcohol, it was like that wall melted down. And I can interact socially and I could talk to people and I could laugh and joke and and thought that I was funny and thought that I was pretty and uh, I was not a home drinker. I, I had to be out there on the bar stool. I had to be in public. I had to be sitting on a bar stool consuming mass amounts of alcohol. And when I look back at that behavior. Uh, I, I know that I didn't have any self-esteem, and so I was getting my self-esteem from unhealthy sources, and that would be the other men in the bars. I needed the men to tell me that I was pretty or that I was fun or, you know, just throw me a bone. You know, I didn't care uh, <laughs> because I was really sick and unhealthy, and, and so I was going to the bars um, feeding this sick part of me. And... Uh, my drinking would continue to escalate. Somewhere in the big book, Bill Wilson wrote that potential female alcoholics often cross the line and become the real McCoy within the span of two years for women. He's talking about women. And this isn't good news, girls, because this is my story. I started, had my first drunk at age 16, and I really believe by age 18 I was a full-blown alcoholic off and running. And so Bill Wilson was right. And... Uh, so I would continue to drink. My alcohol uh, drinking would continue from age 16 to age 28. So my drinking career would span 12 years. And during the course of that 12 years, I would wreak a lot of havoc and a lot of lives. And the more that I drank, the sicker I got. And the sicker I got, the bigger my ego got. And the bigger that hole in my soul got. And the further I got away from um, connecting to other people. And, and just like employment, I've never had a job. During that, that time, I, I, a couple of bartending jobs that I actually did have, I couldn't hold them down for more than two or three months because I'd been getting drunk on the job. I didn't have any skills. I managed to graduate high school, and I don't know how I pulled that one off, um, but I did manage to graduate high school. And after high school, I got involved with this 32-year-old man. And uh, I was like 17 years old, and he was 32. But he was a big drug dealer, and he did a lot of traveling. And I was very intrigued by his lifestyle. Um, he was going to Texas and Florida a lot, and I wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted that money. And I had this sense of entitlement. You know, I thought, you know, I'm really cute, and don't they know who I am? You know, and uh, so then I started to travel, and I had all money, um, and it was all illegal drug money. I, I never, at that point, had never really put in an honest day's work in my life. And uh, my drinking would continue to escalate. And uh, I'm going to fast forward the tape because there's so much I want to cram in this morning. And I really want to cut to the chase here. Um, April 3rd, 1993. It's a Friday night. I have been drinking alcoholically for 12 years. My life is in shambles. I have taken my life and I've burned it down to the ground. And uh, I don't have any friends. The only female um, in my life would be my sister Pam because I don't like women. Right? Women are a threat to me. You guys are trans, um, can see through me. I'm translucent to other women because we're running the same game and all that junk that goes along with that. And uh, so I don't really have any girlfriends. And I'm at a bar with my sister on a Friday night. I started drinking that evening at 5 p.m. And so by midnight, I was thoroughly intoxicated. 
And about midnight, uh, a guy that I was dating at that time had staggered in the bar, and he wanted to move to another location. He wanted to go to a bar in Elmore about five miles away. And uh, so my sister and I piled into my Buick, and he piled into his car, and I was following him down State Route 51. And I lived about three miles. I lived in a farmhouse about three miles from where I was at. And I was very familiar with this road. There was a slight curve in the road. I had driven that road probably 500 times in the last 10 years. And uh, I was arguing with my sister. That was something that was pretty common. When we drank, we, we argued. And we fought constantly when we were under the influence. And I was arguing with my sister. And I was traveling down the road following my boyfriend, entered into that curve, and I never turned my wheels to the right. I just would continue forward on a straight path. And I struck an oncoming vehicle that was traveling toward the city of Toledo. And I killed a 14-year-old boy that was a passenger in the backseat of that car. That's what I did. And for me, the gig was up. It, it was kind of like, I don't want to say I wasn't remorseful, but I was as remorseful as I was emotionally capable of being, if that makes any sense, because I was emotionally retarded. I was so disconnected from myself and from everybody else that I couldn't get my arms around this thing. I couldn't believe that I did this. And uh, during the six months that I was out, um, I, I don't know, I guess I was on some kind of probation or something, I was waiting to go to court. There were several court hearings. There was a, an arraignment and a pretrial and this and that. And, I, you know, I'd never been in that kind of trouble before. And uh, things just got worse and worse and worse for me. Every time I turned around, I was making a front-page headline. And during the summer of 1993, when all this was happening, I would continue to drink. And the thought process behind that was, if you had my problems, you'd drink too. Right? Not that I ever needed an excuse to drink, though. And, uh, but the truth of the matter is, is I didn't have anywhere to turn except to the bottle. At that time in my life, I didn't even have a friend. I didn't even have a friend. So in October of 1993, um, Judge Moon in Port Clinton, Ohio, sentenced me to four to ten years in a maximum security prison for women in the state of Ohio. And they put me in an orange jumpsuit, and they stuck me in a sheriff's car, and they drove me down to central Ohio near Columbus and dropped me off. And there I was, 28 years old, scared, and in this maximum security prison for women, and in the admissions process, they actually put you in, it's just like you see on TV, it's a small, tiny room the size of a bathroom with a bunk, a sink, and a toilet. And you're in that room 23 hours a day. And I kind of thought, oh, my God, I can't do this for four to ten years. You know, I didn't realize that I eventually would be released into population. That's how naive I was. And uh, the truth is I just couldn't even cry. I couldn't even cry and feel my feelings because I was so disconnected. And so in the months that followed, when I got out into population, I would develop these quirky behavior patterns. Now, you can put the plug in the jug. Anybody can stop drinking, right? But in my situation, my experience was I still have untreated alcoholism. And untreated alcoholism is bad, you know. And I'm in this controlled environment. I find myself in an environment where I am a minority. I find myself in an environment with 2,000 women that are running a whole different game than anything I ever run. I manipulate men. I use my good looks to manipulate men. And I'm in this environment with these criminal-minded women. And I had this badge I had to wear on my collar everywhere I went. And it had a picture of me, and it said, Inmate Camp 32480. And I was in total denial about where I was at and what I had done. And so I would do up my hair and my makeup, and I would iron my uniform. I had little creases. 
right? <laughs> and the thought process behind that was if I could just fix up the outside, I could fool you, and you would think I was okay on the inside, right? And it was all part of that mask, all part of that facade. And it didn't take long. They moved me to a pre-release center in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. Because I came in a minimum status. I didn't have any criminal history. They moved me to Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio's best kept secret. It's right there by Jacobs Field where the, uh, the Cleveland Indians play. Uh, they got lifers and murderers there doing life sentences in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. And the only requirement back then when I was there to be housed there was to be a minimum status and be within four years of going home or going to the Ohio Pro Board. So that's how these murderers who had already served 20 years ended up there. And uh, they only had 650 inmates. It was a totally different setup than this maximum security prison. Um, even looking back on it today and all these years later, I, I think that was considerably easier time for me. And uh, I'm a manipulator. I'm always looking out for number one, trying to figure out how I can run an angle, run a scam, how I can get over on you. And I thought, I'm here for an alcohol-related crime. Maybe I should go to some AA meetings. Not because I want to get well or I'm remorseful about what I've done, but I'm going to go to the Ohio Parole Board in May of 96, and maybe if I get some meetings recorded in the docket, they might see that and smile on me and cut me a break, right? I'm always running an angle, always trying to find a way that I could get something for Terry because I'm self-centered to the extreme. And the default mode in my brain is set to self. Even all these years later, every morning, it's a constant undoing. God, please help me get out of myself. God, please work through me. Help me to be of service so that I can get out of me and get into you, because that's the only therapy I've found for my self-centeredness, is to get into you. So I'm going to these AA meetings um, for the wrong reasons. And you know what? I believe it doesn't matter what brings us in here. How many of us came in here skipping and whistling and so happy to be here? And I want to share what I got, right? I mean, we come in here hanging our head, dragging our feet, go straight to the back and sit in the cool section and hope that nobody recognizes us, right? Because we want to get the monkey off our back. And that might be a spouse, a judge, an employer. We just want to get that monkey off our back, right? And that's kind of, and it doesn't matter. We all came in here like that. Doesn't matter how we got here. And so I'm going to these AA meetings. I'm getting this stuff recorded. In 1996 rolls around. I have been incarcerated for two years and four months. And back then, I know they've since changed it, but back then in the state of Ohio, I think you had to do like eight months and 12 days or something, and it counted as a year. So to get four years in, I had to do two years and four months. And uh, so I get to my first parole hearing. Uh, it's in uh, May of 1996, and as that hearing was drawing near, there were other inmates housed there for vehicular homicide, obviously. So I was watching their cases very closely. I wanted to see what the Ohio Parole Board was doing to them so I could help gauge what they would do to me, because this is all about me, right? And uh, in February, there was a girl there named Denise from Cleveland, Ohio, and she was doing a 2 to 10 for vehicular homicide. In fact, the person that was killed was her best friend in the passenger seat. And so then she had the minimum sentence, and she came out of that parole hearing just bawling, crying her eyes out. I said, I was waiting outside. I said, my God, what happened? She said, they just gave me the whole 10 years day for day. In fact, I'm on my way back to Marysville. I can't even be housed here anymore. They put that girl in an orange jumpsuit, loaded her in a white van, and drove her back to Marysville. Right there on the spot, special trip that day. I said, oh, my God. And then, like, the following month, there was a woman there from Sandusky, Ohio. Her name was Kat. And she had gone to the Ohio Pro Board. She was doing a 5 to 10 uh, for vehicular homicide. She mowed down a cyclist who was uh, minding his own business, riding down to the sidewalk on his bicycle. And uh, she had already served three years, went to the Ohio Pro Board. They gave her two. 
So on uh, 5 to 10, she had done five years, and we all thought for sure she was going to go home because she had done the minimum. And when she came out of her parole hearing, she was crying, and she said, uh, they just gave me the whole 10 years day for day. In fact, I'm on my way back to Marysville. I can't be housed here. Not within four years. I got scared. I said, oh, my God. I called my mom. I got scared. I said, Mom, something's going on. They're giving all the vehicular homicides the whole 10 years day for day. And my mom it's like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't know their story. You know, maybe more than one person was killed. Maybe they have multiple prior DUIs. They could have a criminal past you don't know about. Don't compare yourself to them. You're going to be fine. So in May of 1996, I get to my first parole hearing, and guess what? I'm not special. They gave me the whole 10 years day for day. They stuck me in an orange jumpsuit, loaded me in a white van, and drove me back to Marysville. Same day. Special trip just for me. And I found myself sitting in admissions a second time, locked in a box. And I couldn't even cry. I couldn't even feel my feelings. About this 10 years of my life that I gave up because of my drinking. And I always used to say, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Right? Isn't that what we said? And I couldn't make a phone call because I was locked in that box. When they finally put me back in population, I had to call my mom and tell my mom what happened. And all I could hear was her screams echoing off the kitchen in her house, you know. But I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And she's raising my little boy for 10 years. And so when I got settled back in population, <laughs> the morning they came to admissions and they hollered out my name. They had a bed slip for me. They were assigning me to New Cottage. They told me, you're going to go to room 212 in New Cottage. I said, that must be a mistake. They got lifers and people doing mega time are all housed together in New Cottage. And that officer looked at me and he said, didn't you just get eight years at the parole board? See, I still didn't get it. I was in total denial about what was happening. So now they got me housed over there with the other people that are doing massive time. And, you know, and I look back and it kind of makes sense because some of the housing down there is like rows and rows of bunk beds and you can't hear yourself think. And people are constantly in and out and going home. But over a new cottage, everybody had already done a lot of time and they were doing a lot of time. You didn't have to constantly say goodbye to your bunkie, you know. And uh, so I got a job at the warden's area. I had the staff down there fooled, right, because I was always doing the hair and the makeup and carrying myself like I'm someone special, right? And I had the staff down there fooled, and they all thought, oh, she's just this nice sweet girl from the country. And uh, so they gave me a job in the warden's area. I had my own office, my own computer, my own typewriter. I had inmate runners, three runners that were assigned to me, and their job was to sit in the hallway on a bench outside my office and wait for me to finish it with a document and holler out, I need a runner, right? <laughs> now, if this doesn't feed your ego in the penitentiary, I don't know what does, right? And that's another bone. Just throw me a bone. And uh, so I've had this job for a couple of years, and, uh, and even inmates, well, they called me Barbie. Can you imagine? <laughs> they would call me Barbie. And this rumor, I guess I'm going to throw this in here real quick. Sometime early on in my incarceration, a rumor had circulated. Because, see, I was so ashamed and so embarrassed and so humiliated by what I had done that I wouldn't utter a word about it. And my victim's name is Ron Miller, and I never uttered his name the whole 10 years I was incarcerated. 
And a rumor had circulated, because the way I carried myself, I'm great at perpetrating a fraud. And this rumor had circulated that I was a high-ranking executive at some big fancy bank in the state of Ohio. And I was incarcerated for embezzling mass amounts of money. And I liked that, because I thought it meant they think I'm college-educated, and I barely got a high school diploma. you know. And so I never did anything to dispel that rumor. But the truth of the matter is, being someone who stole money from a bank was a whole lot better than being someone who killed a 14-year-old boy. Right. I was running from my own identity because I couldn't own what I did. And several years into it, about five years into my incarceration, I'm working this cushy job at the warden's area. I'm well-respected by high-ranking staff members. I pass them in the hallway every day. They know me by name. I got it going on in the penitentiary. <laughs> right? Because I'm a manipulator. That's what I do. And uh, about five years into it, uh, what I was typing, most of the stuff, the documents I was preparing were bed moves. I was moving inmates from admissions into population. I was moving them from um, housing dorms that had rows and rows of bunk beds into um, seniority moves into single-room housing with just a roommate. And, and none of my documents could leave the count office without Lieutenant Wasmer's signature or any staff member. And on this one particular day, I couldn't find Lieutenant Wasmer to get her to sign him, and I was trying to get these bed moves out before count time because it would throw off the count. And so I had walked into Ms. Floyd's office. She ran the tie office. She was not an inmate. She was an employee of the state of Ohio. And I really respected this woman because Ms. Floyd had every lock of hair was in place. She never wore the same dress twice. She was the epitome of the woman that I wanted to be. Does that make sense? Because I was perpetrating a fraud, and she was the real McCoy, and I really looked up to this lady. And this lady was smart. She could see through me. I, I wasn't so, I, I was translucent to her, and she knew there was some stuff going on with me. And one day I had walked into her office. I said, Miss Floyd, I can't find Lieutenant Wasmer anywhere, and I've really got to get these signed before count time and get them run. Could you please sign off on these real quick? And she said, sure. She says, why don't you come on in here? I want to talk to you anyway. And I went in there, and I sat down, and she said, uh, Terry, there's a really good program at Recovery Services called Hearts, and I think you'd be a great candidate for that. Have you ever thought about treatment? And I looked at her, and I said, you know what? I have been given the whole 10 years, day for day, from the Ohio Parole Board, I am not doing the AA, I'm not doing the Victims Awareness, Parenting, none of those other programs, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do 10 years day for day, and I'm going to go home, right? And then she said the magic words that my ego just loved to hear. She said to me, there is a two-year waiting list to get into that program, but I can pick up the phone and make a phone call, and I can get you in the next group. I said, well, sign me up, right? <laughs> Somebody finally recognized how important I was, Right? And that was the one time in my life, I think, that my ego really, really worked to my advantage. She made the call. I got assigned to the next group, I don't know, four or six weeks, whenever the next group started. And what they had to do was reassign my job. So now I'm not the big-time clerk secretary for the count office. I am a student in the HEARTS program at Recovery Services. I have to report to the Recovery Services building Monday through Friday from 8 to 4, and that's my job assignment. And uh, it didn't take me long to figure out how terribly I had screwed up what I had done. This was an intense behavior modification program, and I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was that I was moving to the front of a two-year waiting list, and that was what mattered to me. <laughs> and uh, so we get over there. A couple weeks into the program, um, there was a girl there. There was, like, I think 14 inmates in the program, then a staff person, a licensed counselor, and then another inmate called a peer leader who had already been through the program. And the way the program was set up, um, well, let me just say this. The, the girl that sat across from me, 
she was there for killing her daughter. This was the rumor I'd heard on the yard. And in the women's penitentiary, if you've harmed a baby, it doesn't matter what it is, and God forbid killed one, you do not discuss that because the other inmates will make your life extremely difficult. And this girl was there for that. And, uh, you know, even inmates have standards. And uh, <laughs> so this girl obviously would never talk about what she had done and why she was incarcerated. And so one day we came back from lunch, and the counselor turned her attention to this girl who sat across from me, and she said, why don't you tell the group what you did to your daughter? And this girl told the story. And this girl went on for about a half an hour and told this horrific story, which has no place in AA, but it's etched in my memory. And uh, when she got done telling the story, the way the group was set up, uh, when you're done sharing, you receive feedback from your peers. And during the feedback process, your hands are flat on the table, your feet are flat on the floor, and you do not speak. And this girl's feedback process went on for about two hours, and they lit her up. Those other inmates in that circle and that staff person lit her up, and they just ripped her up one side and down the other. And I remember thinking during that girl's feedback process, your turn is coming. There's going to be a day when they ask you about what you did. You're going to be in the hot seat. And that was on a Wednesday. And Friday we came back from lunch at 1 o'clock. And the counselor looked at me and she said, Terry, why don't you tell the group that story about the night you wrecked your car? I said, all right. First thought that goes through my brain is, the cat's out of the bag. You didn't embezzle from a bank. You killed a kid, right? It's all about saving face for me. It's always been about saving face. And so I told the story. And when I told the story... Um, I had never, ever told this story during the course of my incarceration. And there I was in a circle of inmates asked to tell the story. And so this old dusty old tape comes down off the shelf in the back of my mind. And it was almost like this reel-to-reel starts rolling in the front of my memory. And I am um, sharing images of what I'm seeing. I'm not connected to the scene. I'm not a part of the scene. I'm not sharing from my heart because I don't know how to go down to my heart. It's all coming from up here. And uh, when I got done telling the story, and I cried a little bit, my little mascara was smeared, I was trying to act like I was putting my feelings into it, but I couldn't because I wasn't connected to my feelings, and I had not yet taken responsibility for what I had done. And when I got done telling that story, I had to put my hands flat on the table and my feet flat on the floor, and my feedback went on until 4 o'clock that afternoon, and my feedback went something like this. If I didn't know any better, I would think you were the victim. And you make me sick. You take no responsibility for what you did to that 14-year-old boy. And I can still see that counselor slamming her fist on the table, shouting at me, do you want to save face or save ass? Right? Well, I want to save face, obviously. I want to save both. But you can't. You can't save both. And uh, that afternoon, I tell you, it was almost as if I had built this wall. I had spent several years constructing this wall block after block. And every comment those girls made, every everything that they said, it was just like they had hammers and chisels and picks, and they were banging at that wall and banging at that wall. And I couldn't speak during this process. And what they were doing is they was knocking the wall down. And at one point during the course of the afternoon, and I don't know who said what, I don't remember at what point, but it was almost like a beam of light just kind of went through that wall and pierced me right here. Just for I just had a moment of clarity. And at 4 o'clock, I stood up, I grabbed my book, I couldn't get out of that room fast enough. I, You know that flight or fight response? I'm the flight girl. I'm out of here, man. And uh, so I grabbed my book, and I started to exit out the room, and that counselor looked at me, and she said, not so fast. When you get back to your room, I want you to wash that makeup off. I don't want to see any makeup on you for the next two weeks. Don't do your hair. She said, in fact, I want you to wear a ponytail for two weeks without any makeup. 
Like, it makes perfect sense to me today. At that moment, it made zero sense to me. I'm thinking to myself, whatever. You know, I just wanted to get out of the room. And she said, and another thing, when you get back to your room, I want you to write a letter to that boy. And you bring that letter to group Monday morning, 8 a.m. You have your letter. And I'm all crying and teary-eyed. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to say. She's like, I'm not going to tell you what to say. And I'm not going to tell you what to write. You bring a letter to group on Monday morning. I said, all right. So I went back to my room at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. And my feelings were raw. It was like they had just sliced me open right here, and everything was exposed. All my dirty laundry, all my junk, all my crud, all that stuff was exposed. And I sat down on my bed, and I picked up a pen and a paper, and I started to write. And I wrote four pages front and back to that 14-year-old boy, and it just flowed off the end of that pen. And I was writing things like, you are never going to graduate from high school. You are never going to get your driver's license. You're never going to marry a wife. You're never going to procreate. I have taken all these things away from you and so much more. It's like, do you see what was happening? Like a shift was occurring inside of me. I was getting honest for the first time in my life about what really happened. You know, when I look back on that weekend, what that weekend was like for me, that, that state of vulnerability, it was just like I was stripped down naked. Everything I ever used to defend myself, to hide behind, all those defenses, they were all gone. And I sat there naked and scared, waiting for direction. I was surrendering, and step one was infiltrating my life, and I didn't even know it. So on Monday morning, I get back to group. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. We circle up around the table, and I looked at that counselor, and I said, I've got my letter. She said, that's good. I said, well, I want to read it. Because I knew that letter came from my heart. And she said, you will. But before you read the letter, I want to revisit group on Friday. I want you to share with these women the story about that night you wrecked your car. But this time, I want you to tell the truth. And man, for a split second, I thought I was going to fall out of that chair. I thought, man, I can't possibly go through that again. And then that fast, the thought that came behind it was, you know what? Screw it. Just put it out there. Because all that stuff, I'm a stuffer. All my life I have been stuffing down and stuffing down. Everything, if it's emotional, painful, scary, frightening, whatever it is, I just stuff it down, stuff it down, stuff it down. And over the course of that weekend, all of that stuff kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And it was like right here in my throat, and I was choking on my own crud. I needed to have an emotional vomit right there on the table and just get it out of me. And so I told the story. And all the, so the story was the same as the story I told Friday. This time it was different. Because it wasn't all about me, poor me, poor me, how horrible it was for me. It was about a 40-some-year-old woman that was running down State Route 51 out in the country in the direction of Toledo, Ohio, crying and screaming because her only son was bleeding to death in the backseat of her car. She was a registered nurse, and she could not save his life. I got honest, and I told the truth. And the scene in the road that night was really pretty horrific. And I did that. I own that. That's mine. And I'm just going to take that. So where do we go from here? Now what do we do? So when I got done telling the story, I put my hands on the table to get my feedback, and I... The counselor looked at me and she said, before we do that, I want you to read the letter. So I read the letter. When I got done reading that letter, I looked up. There were 14 inmates sitting around that circle, bawling their eyes out. Friday, they had their claws out. Monday morning, they were crying because we were all connected. Right? 
I had opened up my heart. I opened up my soul, and I let these girls in there, in this dark, scary place that I was so afraid to go. And it's like we all just took our light and just went down into that dark, scary place and just lit it up. And that's how you heal it. I can't think my way through this. I'm always trying to analyze things and use my brain because I'm smart and I can figure this thing out. Well, guess what? My ego and my disease are in my brain. It's a scary place. I can't figure it out up here. The real work is done down here. That's where we get the work done. I see you nodding because you're picking up what I'm sitting down. You get that, don't you? And that's what we have to do. And so that program would continue on for about another three months, and I got a lot of work done. I was able to address other issues, like, well, I had never been in a healthy relationship because of things that happened to me when I was little, and it has no place in AA. But I assure you, I got a lot of work done. And when that program ended about four months later, uh, the counselor who had walked me through this process called me in the office, and she said, uh, well, you have completed the program, and I called up to the count office. They saved your job, and they want you back. But we sure would like it if you'd come over here and work for Recovery Services. And I'll tell you, there's 2,000 inmates housed at that prison down there in Marysville, Ohio, and only eight of those 2,000 were employed at Recovery Services, and those eight were handpicked by Recovery Services, and they asked me. And I didn't even have to think about it. I said, you know what? My ego and my disease doesn't need me up at the warden's area being all I can be in the penitentiary. I need to be all I can be. I need to be over here at Recovery Services, right? You guys get that. It's all ego-driven. I love you guys, man. You guys are good. And uh, so I took that job, and part of my job every day, Monday through Friday, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, they had two meetings a day. So depending on what shift you worked or where you worked, you could go to a meeting a day if you wanted to in the penitentiary. So the 1 o'clock meeting in the afternoon, Monday could have been a big bill. Tuesday might have been a 12 and 12, whatever it was. My job was to set up the tables and chairs and put the books out and chair that meeting and make it happen. And in the evening, almost every weeknight, they had outside speakers coming into the prison to share their experience, strength, and hope. So I started going to those. And I was going to two meetings a day, every day, for about three years at that point in my life. And that's a lot of recovery. And that's exactly what I needed because I'm sick. I was a real sick puppy when I first got here. And I had spent uh, the first five years of my incarceration um, trying to be all I could be in the penitentiary and wasting that time. And the last five years, I got busy, and I got down to work. And I started working with other inmates, and I found myself sitting out in the yard, and I was listening to people and sharing. And uh, about eight years into my incarceration, I obviously now I'm eligible to go back to the pre-release center. And it was much closer for my family to drive to the Privilege Center to visit me than to Marysville. And so I had put in a request to go on a Monday. And Thursday morning, they called my name and told me to pack my bags that I was returning to Cleveland. And I went to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, to the Northeast Privilege Center and finished my last two years up there. And as soon as I got there, the first thing I did was run over to Recovery Services Department. And her name was Miss Daniels. And I had knew her from earlier in the 90s because I'd been there once before. And uh, But this time, I'm back to the Privilege Center with a different attitude and a different outlook on life. And some of the, the benefits and the, the gifts of this program had started to manifest in my life. Although I was physically incarcerated, I was free on the inside, right, if that makes sense. I was free on the inside. And so I had gone over to recovery services and told Miss Daniels, you know, I, um, 
what, kind of, what literature do you have? What, what CDs do you have? What, what, you know, what audios? What, what are the resources here? And I really cared and I really wanted to know. And she was trying to service 650 inmates out of a tiny little office the size of my bathroom. But she did have some audios and she had the Joe and Charlie tapes on cassette. And I, I would check out those Joe and Charlie tapes and every single day at the four o'clock count, because you have to go sit on your bed and they got to count all the inmates. And it takes about 45 minutes to count all those people. And, uh, every day at four o'clock I was on my bonk with the Joe and Charlie tapes listening to those and I had highlighters and I was highlighting in that book and, and reading that book and, and I used the Joe and Charlie tapes to acclimate myself to the big book and to find out what was about in that book and, and I learned so much about this program sitting on a bunk in a prison cell listening to Joe and Charlie and they helped me immensely. My resources were limited but the little bit that I did have I was grabbing a hold of and uh, because I, I didn't want to go back out and drink again and I wanted to be different and, uh, and to change and to improve myself. And so my special day came. It was October uh, the 19th of 2003. So I've been home just a little over eight years. It was on a Sunday morning. All the leaves were turning. I had served 10 years day for day. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and my mom was in the parking lot. And uh, that gate buzzed. I can still hear that gate buzzing. And I had in my arms um, a TV, some treasured photographs, and a big book. That's what I had. It's all I owned. And I walked through that gate, and I remember thinking to myself, did I get enough work done? Was I honest? Did I mean everything that I said? Am I going to go out here and drink and screw this thing up? What am I going to do? And I knew, I knew that what I needed to do was to network myself to Alcoholics Anonymous immediately upon my release, like that day. And I didn't drive, uh, but it didn't matter because God made a way. And on that Sunday night, I went to a meeting in Fremont, Ohio, and I networked with some women and got some phone numbers. And then on Wednesday, I went to the Gibsonburg group and made that my first home group. And I got a sponsor that night, and I have continued to go to AA meetings. I've not looked back. I have continued to look forward and to work the program to the best of my ability. And uh, I want to share with you some quirky things. Uh, Ten years is a long time, okay? Yeah, a really long time. And sometimes I still have to pinch myself. I can't believe that I did 10 years in prison. And, and you can't judge a book by a cover. You know, I, when I sit in the airport or, or you know, some places that I go, I look around and I, I see other people who I would consider um, to be successful in life. And I think to myself, you're so nice and so friendly to me. Because what they're looking at on the exterior, if they only knew that I did 10 years in prison and I'm an ex-felon, would they still treat me so nice? You know what I mean? And uh, so anyway, that trip home that morning, it was a Sunday morning in October of uh, 2003. We were coming down the Ohio Turnpike, and I had been free for about 20 minutes. And we stopped at one of those turnpike plazas for a potty break and to get some coffee at McDonald's. And we pulled in there, and we were standing in the line, and there were people around us. And my mom pulled out some money to pay for the coffee. And I said, oh, my God, what happened to the money? And she goes, for like a second, like everybody was staring at me and it got real quiet. And she leans forward and she goes, what do you mean there's nothing wrong with the money? I said, the heads are so big. How could you tell a five from a ten? I couldn't tell a ten from a twenty. I couldn't recognize money. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, Terry, you need to keep your mouth shut. Because I felt like I had this big tattoo on my forehead. Ex-felon just released from prison after 10 years. So then we go in the restroom. That's five minutes later. We're going to take a potty break. And we go in the restroom. And my mom beat me out of the restroom. And she was standing up there by the sink waiting for me. And I walked up to the sink. And I saw the faucet there. And I looked at her. And I said, 
where's the, the handles? <laughs> and she said, you guys know where I'm going, don't you? She said, just stick your hand under the faucet. I said, what? She said, stick your hand. So I stuck my hand and the water pour. I said, oh, my God. I can't wait to get further down the road. I don't know what's going on. Right? And uh, it was just for like the first two or three months, every corner I turned, Walmart. Oh, my God. I walked into my first Walmart. I thought, my God, what is this? I uh, hadn't seen anything like that in my life. And for the first couple of months, it was just like rediscovering the planet Earth, the United States, uh, people. Uh, I look back on it. I went on my first date. Actually, I waited. I waited several months. And uh, I was on a date uh, with uh, the person I actually ended up marrying and uh, that I went to high school with. His mom was my English teacher. Real safe, one of those normal guys. And uh, we're going down I-280 in Toledo, and his cell phone rings in his pocket. And I said, what is that? And he goes, what's what? And he hit the ignore button. I go, that, it sounded like a phone. He said, well, that's my cell phone. I go, you got a cell phone? Can I see it? You know, and it was like everything was fresh and brand new, and I was so grateful for everything. And I look back at just how grateful I was. Like, I want to be that kind of grateful every day, you know? I want to be that kind of grateful. So immediately upon my release, obviously, um, I returned back to the small village of Woodville, Ohio, where I grew up. I did not have a good reputation. Um, I had, like I said, I had taken my life and burned it down to the ground. And what I, was really important to me was to reacquaint myself with my community. Not that I had to prove something, but I wanted them to trust me again. I wanted them to respect me again because I knew I had to live here. And I took a job at the local grocery store as a cashier. And initially, when people came in to purchase a gallon of milk, some eyebrows were raised uh, because there I was, there to scan it and take their money. And uh, it didn't take long because I wasn't sitting over at the bar getting drunk every Friday and Saturday night. I was going to meetings in the evening, and I was getting up in the morning, and I was going to work. And a couple of months after my release, an old friend of mine came in and said that Dr. Lobb, the um, optometrist across the street, was going to hire somebody. That his young, his brother, who had polio, the, op- the optician on staff, uh, was having difficulty, uh, needed someone to help him make phone calls, file files. I thought, well, God, I could do that. And then I got to thinking about it, and I, you know, I don't take rejection very well. And I thought to myself, you know, that old little voice of insecurity that's in the back of our head, and it whispers those sweet little nothings, and it would whisper into my head stuff like, what doctor in their right mind would hire you, an ex-felon? And what do you have to offer the medical field? You know, and da-da-da-da-da, and all that stuff, and I was talking to my sponsor about it, and she said, you know what, don't listen to that voice. You march your butt over there, and you apply for that position. And I mustered up the courage, and I went over there. And you know what? Over the first four months of my release, a lot of people in my community had gone in there because they were putting feelers out. They were telling the patients of this community, we're going to hire somebody. Who do you recommend? Who do you recommend? And my name kept coming up. And they heard about me, and they were waiting for me. And when I went over there, I was, and I was so scared, they hired me on the spot. And so then I was working two jobs. I'm working part-time at the grocery store, part-time for the eye doctor, and I had all these balls in the air, and I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous and giving away what I found in these rooms. And uh, in 2006, the doctor's brother, the one who had the polio, who trained me, uh, suddenly got ill with cancer and died suddenly uh, about two months after he was diagnosed. And after Bill died, his death, um, as far as my career goes, it really did change things because now I am the sole employee of that op- the office, the doctor's office, and uh, Dr. Lobb, my employer, had approached me after Bill's death, maybe a month or so later, and said, 
Terry, I highly, highly encourage you to get your optician license. I'll get the material for you that you need to study. They offer the test in Columbus twice a year. I'll even pay for you to go down and take the test. You need to do this. Uh, he wanted to make an investment in me because he believed in me. And uh, so I started to study for that test, and I learned something about myself. I am smart when I try and apply myself. And so in January, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, I began to study for that test, and I worked really hard. And in May of that spring, I went down to Columbus, Ohio, and I sat for the Ohio um, dispensers, uh, the optician license test, and I passed that test. And I am a licensed optician in the state of Ohio, and now I'm an overachiever. So I went on to get my national certification, which just means I can <laughs> practice optician in any of the 50 states. And, you know, and i got to tell you, when I got out of prison, I didn't have a plan for the future. I was so trusting that God had a plan for me that he knew where he wanted me to be, and he was going to put me in the right place at the right time. And that is exactly how it's unfolded. And I really believe if you just keep doing what you're supposed to do, just keep doing the next right thing consistently to the best of your ability, things will happen. Doors open unexpectedly. You find yourself at the right place at the right time. You know, this is a giving program, and, and all my life I've taken, 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 and smashed this and ruined that, and, you know... 18 years of sobriety, here, here's where I'm at. I can't give you guys enough. You know, I look at my life and the way I live my life today, and, and Alcoholics Anonymous has done so much for me. You guys taught me how to be a better mother. You guys taught me how to be a good friend, how to be a good daughter, how to be successful in my career, how to dress like a lady, how to talk, how to treat people. That's big stuff. How do you pay that back? How do you pay that back? I could never pay Alcoholics Anonymous back. I, I just, it doesn't matter how many pots of coffee I make and how many tables and chairs I put together. I can't give it back and try as I might. So as I wind my story down this morning, I kind of want to leave you on this note. Um, I'm like Peggy. I just never know how I'm going to open or close, but this is what's coming into my mind, and this is what I want to share. Um, those steps are real important to me, and the girls that I work with and, uh, other people in alcoholics, I just, I cannot stress this importance enough of those 12 steps. And I work those steps to the best of my ability. And I take the girls I sponsor through those 12 steps. And when we get to our ninth step, our ninth step suggests to us that we go out and make an amends to the people we've harmed and that we do it face to face. And in my situation, um, for what I have done, um, the best analogy that is coming into my mind right now is, uh, Let's say that um, I'm in a drunken stupor and I break your window and uh, because I'm throwing rocks and I'm acting stupid. And a couple years down the road, and you're my neighbor, and a couple years down the road I get sober and I decide that I want to live an honest, clean life and I start working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and I get to step nine and you're on it. You're on my eighth step. Your name came up. And uh, my sponsor suggested me that I go to you and I make that amends. And I go to my neighbor and I tell my neighbor, I'm sorry I broke your window. Well, you know what? That's a great beginning on step nine, but that's not it. Because more action is required. In addition to telling you, I am sorry I broke your window, I need to also replace the window that I broke and stop throwing rocks. Right? That's what it's about. It's about cleaning it all up. we got to clean it all up. And in my situation, I have stopped throwing rocks, and I've apologized, but the window that I've broke can't be replaced. I can't breathe life into a dead person. God knows if I could, I'd have done it a long time ago. So I make my amends through right living by consistently doing the next right thing, by staying sober, by helping other women, by reaching out. You know, And every time 
that I step up to a microphone and I share my experience, strength, and hope, I move just a little bit closer to my amends. And for that, I want to thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.